refrigerated. Uh, if you refrigerate it, you can get that down to like a month, but you should be, you should not just have an old bottle of vermouth. And most people who think they don't like drinks with vermouth in them are wrong. They are drinking old vermouth. They're trying to make it themselves and they don't oh, know what they're doing. And they're tricking that's themselves. That's freaking hilarious. Okay, well, that's going uh, in the fridge. <laughs> yeah. No, so the thing is, the, the thing to know is that Alice uh, doesn't know what she's talking about. Uh, <laughs> vermouth is disgusting and tastes like butthole. You I, haven't I had started oh, the recording, by the way. You, yeah, uh, I'll start. I'll start. Vermouth, my, my I'm local. tired of mixed drinks that have uh, Amaro's. Mixed, mixed drinks. Mixed drinks are the ones that Cocktails God doesn't care about. Fucking right? care. Like, okay, he doesn't want me to drink? Fine. I think that God respects an Aperol spritz. Uh, God does and, not and respect. Oh, I fucking don't respect an Aperol spread. Well, you should because they're delicious. I'm 100 on board with you. No, I love for you. Thank you. Thank you. I love you too. Fucked. Get fucked. I'm I'm also fine with vermouth. Um, yeah. I think we're three yeah, to one yeah, on this one. Yeah, eat, but the thing is, and I'll, I'll repeat this for the viewers. I'll repeat this for the viewers. I will. You're not. If you think you don't like vermouth, you're wrong. What you're doing is you're not refrigerating your vermouth. It's a fortified wine. It needs to go in the refrigerator. Otherwise, oh. it will spoil within like a week. It'll taste bad. Uh, Liam, FYI, I just wanted to fill you in. Um, since uh, since they're a little bit under the weather, I'm totally happy to take the lead storytelling. Uh, and you guys insert joke here as you go along. I've got, uh, I found an amazing amount of original source material, including the original Interstate Commerce report. So we're oh, really well informed. Yeah, if you feel if you comfortable and confident in doing that, uh, yeah. yeah, that's fine. Knock yourself 100%. out. Cool. Because yeah, I, yeah. I have uh, just allergies. something which is... You have allergies. I, no, have no, allergies. I'm actually sick. Are you coming to the park? Are you still coming out on Saturday? Well, it Giggle. depends on how sick I am. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll give you a, a tug job. I don't really care. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of tugboat? Steam or diesel? <laughs> no, not that kind of tugboat, but... It could be both. <laughs> you the, could do it on a tugboat. No, 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 I'm... It's going to be one of those glass-bottom gator boats. <laughs> it's a railroad tug. There we go. Mm, yeah. First uh, class, more like first ass. Oh, I mean, God. one of my favorite railroading terms of all is the manned helper service. Which is okay, the guy so, who sucks you off? Or? I mean, yes, but also. Um, so in really mountainous terrain, they usually pair a few locomotives at the bottom of a grade to shove a long train up a hill. Um, before there were remote control units, you would have to have a full crew stand in those helper locomotives, especially in the steam era, uh, to shove the trains up a hill. And so that would be a manned helper service. You would be able to shove the trains up and down the hills and make sure they break on their way down. Um, and yeah, it's and it, there's a place in Helper, Utah, where that was very famously done on the Rio Grande. I, uh, I misheard you 90s. for a second there, as there's a place in hell for Utah, which I'm possibly... <laughs> yeah, that's probably. what I also heard. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say. Mormonism is a heresy. <laughs> I, w- I went on Brigham Young Money about this, and I had a great time. <laughs> Young Money? Uh, yeah. Brigham Young Money, name. a great... It, well, it's a great, great podcast. podcast. Yeah. Great podcast. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Okay, I am recording. We are good to go. Highball, okay. as it were. Yes. All right. Um, welcome to... <laughs> Well, there's your problem. It's a podcast about engineering disasters with slides. I'm Justin Rosniak. I'm the person who's talking right now. My pronouns are he and him. All right, go. I am Alice Caldwell-Kelly. I'm the person who is talking now. My pronouns are she and her. Yay, Liam. 
Go fuck yourself. Um, hi, <laughs> go my fuck name yourself, is Liam Thank you. Oh, I missed you so much. I love you so Aww. much. Uh, hi, my name is Liam Anderson. My pronouns are are he, him. And number two, Arizona lost to fifteen rank, fifteen seed Princeton, which I think is very funny. <laughs> and we have a guest. <laughs> we have a guest. I'm Miles Callen, and uh, he, they pronouns works good for me. <laughs> oh, that yeah, is juicy. Yeah. Let's get that phlegmy cough button in here. That is Ugh. juicy, my well, the guy. Worst part the, is the, know, where the, my throat is sore is just below where I'm able to clear it by coughing. The, the, they oh, put a sort oh, of no. cough button on soundboards. And what yeah. that does is it boosts the microphone input so everybody can oh, no. hear you coughing. Oh, God. Oh, God. Everyone, everyone can uh, experience my suffering. Remember when you had COVID <laughs> and you were just and you sounded like Jordan uh, Peterson? I very much oh, suspect yeah. this is COVID round three based on how long this has lasted. Oh, um, man. <laughs> so today slash tonight, I guess we're talking about why the U.S. doesn't have high-speed rail. Mm-hmm. And it's because this of again. this one incident in 1946. Yes. You see here some train cars. Yeah. But they're kind of on their sides and like spread They only out. do that when they feel threatened, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. It's true. Well, yeah, they're, they're not supposed to be like that. So back in 1946, there was a train wreck on the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy, just outside Naperville, Illinois. Because, this would are they going to get the you for pronouncing history. it Quincy, first of all? Is, it's, is it Quincy or is it Quincy? It's Quincy. Quincy is the suburb of Boston. Okay, yeah. I've never been sure about this because I, I have just enough like reflected knowledge from Fallout Four here, so I can't tell yeah. whether or not yeah, they're gonna... Quincy is, uh, like I said, the suburb of Boston. Uh, yeah, you may know Shocks as we like to call him, Tommy from Quincy. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> All right, so... yeah, they on a podcast sometime. But yeah, is that's it... right. Today yeah. we're going to talk about the infamous Naperville wreck. Hey, uh... exactly. It's not 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 one of those wrecks that necessarily people remember, but it's infamous to us. Yeah. <laughs> yes, as uh, soon as friendless will be, nerds, yes, will be infamous uh, to you. Slightly yeah. less friendless nerds after the following four and a half hour presentation. Yeah, but everybody first, I know is sick. Yeah, we have to do. Have I'm to not do. sick. I'm feeling good. I also feel good. Yeah, the goddamn news. Oh, you, the you goddamn and I, news. we're immune. You know, the goddamn yeah. news. <laughs> You used my joke. <laughs> if you if you're just listening, you're unable to see the 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 Chiron or the side. This is this is a picture of Silicon Valley Bank, which we have subtitled in "Jump, you fuckers," and we hope that they do. Of course, mm-hmm. um, if if you're not if you're not familiar, Silicon Valley Bank, sixteenth um, largest bank in the United States, became the sort of like. Go to bank for a lot of Silicon Valley guys, a lot of hedge fund guys, a lot of VC guys, a lot of VC guys. I don't know why I said hedge fund. That's not true. A lot of VC guys, Um, and all of those VC guys, they have a lot of money, and then they distribute it to companies that they think are going to create, like Uber Two or WeWork Two or whatever. And those Uh, companies, which have like four guys who all wear hoodies to work, and you know, like three of them are on visas, they suddenly have like four hundred million dollars in their bank account, Um, and they're like. Well, okay, we don't need a second bank account, right? Like the guy who gave us this four hundred million dollars has like banks at Silicon Valley Bank. Fucking Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, banks with Silicon Valley Bank. Um, or and unfortunately, to. yeah, it, well, his wineries bank there. Um, and 
Unfortunately, Silicon Valley Bank uh, was very, very heavily leveraged into one sort of narrow and very stupid kind of money, venture capitalists and their sort of like ghoulish projects. Um, and then the Federal Reserve made the economy slightly more real. They kicked interest rates up a bit. Um, and all of this shit fell over, like instantly. The thing that was designed to sort of like, uh, you know, drive down wages and uh, all of this other shit turned out, um, it like, Everyone knew it was gonna like take out a bunch of weak companies. No one knew, except for you know us, anyone on the left, anyone who had been paying attention, that a bunch of really weak companies includes most of fucking like this field in Silicon Valley. And so <laughs> the bank falls over, right? Um, uh, the bank falls over on Friday, uh, and then uh, the FDIC sort of takes it over, puts it into receivership, uh, and now what uh, Dark Brandon has done is a surprisingly radical move, which is, uh, well, the, the 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 crux of this is like with a fiat currency, money is money, right? It's worth the same everywhere, um, except if it's in a bank account. And then it's sort of like a more complicated financial instrument, which has risk attached to it, and which might be worth more, might be worth less. Um, not anymore. Like, it's out of great. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, uh, previously, you're like, uh, you're, you're holding some bank account, were insured up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation (FDIC). Individual. I don't know if is yeah. that commercial. Is, yeah, I thought. Yes, yeah. but then there's also a subsequent commercial thing on top of that for another hundred and fifty thousand. Right, yes. Um, okay. Yes. Yeah, it's so a long uh, time since I took uh, banking finance. You would have to be very, very stupid to keep sort of more than that in one bank account as a company. Uh, anyway, so yeah, um, that's so, but that's gone now because now uh, the, you know the feds have just guaranteed all of the deposits of Silicon Valley Bank after a lot of like sweating and whining by like VC guys on Twitter, um, and so now now your money is worth the same everywhere, and this is like. A surprisingly large intervention, and hopefully it's going to stabilize things. Credit Suisse has collapsed on sort of a semi-related thing. Um, yeah, they so but they are getting fifty-four billies from uh, from Switzerland Central Bank, Finma, and Finma. First, yeah, uh, Finma. And why God. are they giving them goats? I, I, because I, I, yeah, you know, fin, yeah, shut the yeah. fuck up. And uh, <laughs> First Republic is getting $30 billion from Jesus Christ, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, and Morgan Stanley. And yep. Yellen testified before the finance committee. It was like, everything's fine. I mean, Which, everything kind of is. Like, yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't panic. I wouldn't believe people on Twitter who are telling you to go and like take money out no, of your bank they've account. Only, they've only borrowed $11.9 billion from the, uh, Emergency loan program, <laughs> uh, on from starting on Sunday, which it's probably not that bad. No, it's it's no, it's genuinely not though. But what this, the bulls what this, bracket banks are gonna be fine. Yeah, I mean, what frankly, this, thank God for the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation uh, WPA yeah. instrument. Like, if yeah. with that, without that, we would be in free fall. Also, there's something annoying to me about people being like, why are people getting a bailout uh, from the FDIC? I'm like, yeah, it's been around since the w from, since like the 30s. The 30s. It's not a bailout. It's, like, it's, it's what it's for. It's what it's for. Yeah, but, um, literally doing point. his job. Yeah. I'll tell yeah, you so, who so, this is so, good news for is mm. uh, podcasters, because uh, guess who banks with Silicon Valley Bank? Patreon, Patreon, allegedly. Patreon, I'm not sure yeah. that's true, actually. Uh, but yeah, so as, as soon as I knew that uh, this didn't implicate us, I was happy. But I, I think the main thing here is that, like, 
on, on the one hand, this number is one. <laughs> this is like sort of a, a big centrally planned piece of like sort of Keynesianism, right? Is we're gonna we're gonna keep all mm -hmm. of this shit going in order to preserve the wider economy. What I would like to see. And what I think a lot of people increasingly would like to see is a little bit less market, a little bit less Keynes in this Keynesianism, and the government deciding, hey, if we own this shit, maybe we should just operate it. Why do we have like private banking in the first place if we're going to have to take it over every time there's a crisis and it falls over because we don't actually have an economy based on building shit or trading shit? Go figure, right? Yeah. Just an idea, you know, maybe, yeah. maybe. Uh, just, uh, nationalize it. Nationalize all of it. Are you suggesting a third bank of the United States? Yeah, and I think they should have a beautiful building that you should get to have to model in excruciating detail in City Skylines 2 when it comes out. Agreed. Right, yeah. I think, I, think, I think it'd be fun to have a third bank of the United States would go back to the old banking system where <laughs> they issue Federal Reserve notes which are exchangeable for privately pressed banknotes from private banks and oh, yeah. no one knows what anything is worth we'll do this even nicer it'll be artisanally small batch printed on a printing press Ooh, no. i like it i like it yeah my my, my sort of like my california bug smell press. of like um smell of like rosemary or whatever yeah it's cool Ooh. so what happens when a locomotive gets tired yes in other news it is happening again. Yes. Oh yeah, I, we gotta put the thing out. We gotta at do this the point. Thing. Yeah, at this point, I'm I, I'm like we, we're just gonna have a segment on here that's just the weekly derailment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, honestly, it'll be funny as as a, as a gag to rename the goddamn news the goddamn derailment of the week. <laughs> I like it. So the um, so uh, BNSF uh, the Burlington Northern Santa Fe. Uh, sometime late last night or early this morning, uh, derailed a train on the uh, Swinomish uh, reservation or Swinomish. No, no, it's Swinom Swinomish. Right? Yeah. Hmm. Um, is this is a, a reservation? It's a it's a Native American reservation in northern Washington. Right. Uh, this is near Anacortes, Washington. Uh, or Xanacords. I don't know how to pronounce that. That's okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is sort of, um, you can see here, we've got two locomotives on the ground. There was another train car back here, which has since been re-railed and pulled away somewhere back there. Yeah. Um, th so this is on the reservation, but it is also next to the oil refinery that's on the reservation. Let's so go! I, yeah. <laughs> America is so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love that it's clearly like super uh, marshy track as well, and it's probably like, eh, it'll be good for twenty five miles an hour. Who cares? Mm -hmm. And then it gets squishy and GP thirty nine and looks like a what is that a GP thirty eight dash two goes smoosh. Probably, yeah, uh, yeah. This is what really uh, freaked me out about. The, I'll get to that in a second, but uh, yeah. So what you can sort of see here is back here is a derail, right? That's a device to deliberately derail trains. Well, Why well, would you do that? That, that guy well, who 3D printed them. Is yes, like... yes, yes. Oh my god. No, <laughs> no, this is, this, is, this is much more extensive than that. This is actually part of a switch. This actually oh. works, as opposed yeah. to the portable derail, which <laughs> even, even the real ones don't work. Um, <laughs> Most of the time, no. Yeah. So you do this because over here, there's a swing bridge. 
um, which normally is locked in the open position because there's not that many trains. They close it for when a train comes. So the question here is, <laughs> why did the train go off the derail when he's supposed to stop and get permission from the bridge tender before proceeding and confirmation that the bridge is closed? We don't know that yet, but it is kind of interesting to see, okay, here, here's a, the result of a, a fail safe, which is still catastrophic, but less catastrophic than the other option. Um, yeah, uh, oh, better, the, better put a train on the ground than put a train in the water, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah both uh, both crew members on this train were uh, they they got out uninjured. They were fine. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah, yeah. This happened twice on the Northwestern Pacific in California back in the fifties uh, and again in the eighties, where this derail was not present before a swing span or a lift span in this case over the Brazos River, and mm -hmm. uh, both times two diesel locomotives went in the drink, and uh, the second time there was a rail fan right there at the bridge as it happened and took pictures as it splashes mm. into the water. That's, That's absolutely fantastic. spectacular. I'll put a link wasn't in the there description. Also, wasn't there also an incident where uh, someone, uh, there was a lift bridge and of course the counterweight comes down onto the tracks when it's open yep. and uh, the locomotive just whacked into it. Just and then pancaked. It. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not, very, not, a great, not a great situation. Um, yeah. Yeah. They don't run trains so good here. Yeah. <laughs> well, one thing I thought was interesting about this, especially after that article came out in the American Prospect yesterday, is um, oh yeah, yeah, this locomotive here. This is a GP thirty. Um, it's been rebuilt into a GP thirty nine, but the body and frame of this locomotive were built when JFK was still yeah, the, alive. The Kennedy administration. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we really don't do it so well, Alice. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Um, in fact, here is a picture of this locomotive in 1962, uh, lettered for the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy, hey. which coincidentally is the railroad we will be talking about today. Hey. <laughs> but for bad, so it's, it, you know, it's all held together, beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So this is uh, an interesting derailment because you have a, you know, uh, a failsafe worked. But why did why was the failsafe needed? You know, what happened there? Um, you know, it could be operator error or it could be something weirder. Um, hmm. It was probably I mean, it makes sense. Were they switching? Obviously, it's a local. So it's a local train. There's a bunch of uh, the, this track back here goes back to the oil refinery. Hmm. They were coming out of the oil refinery, uh, right. presumably, uh, presumably with uh, all the cars. I wonder um, if it was foggy or there was some impaired clearance or something. Could and be honestly, foggy, could be, it was late at night, so everyone was tired, you know? Yeah, <laughs> it yeah. happens. Who amongst it's, us has not derailed the train in, when they got, got sleepy? Got called in with two hours notice. Oh, yeah. We were just about to go to bed. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so this is this is what happens when the when crew the is fatigued. Is that... That yeah, the train has to take a nap. <laughs> We've all been there. We've all been yeah. there. We've all thought, oh, I'm gonna have a late night. You know, before I go to the bars, I'll take a nap. Yeah, and that's what that train did here. And that's yes. okay. The BNSF disco nap. Keep working on yourself, yeah. girl. It's okay. <laughs> so, um, that was. Oh wait, I. In regards I... to that article from the American Prospect, that was about um you know, how railroads get around emission standards, and that's by just reusing old locomotives forever. Yeah. 
rather than mm-hmm. buying new ones. To the point where, of course, well, now you can't buy a new locomotive, basically. Um, yeah, AMD well, they... stopped producing four-axle locomotives with the GP60 in the 1990s. Think about how long ago the 1990s was. Well, maybe we shouldn't, but you get the idea. Um, (laughs) Nobody else has come out with a four-axle locomotive that is a road switcher that is not some horrible rebuilt genset piece of shit or uh, some experimental thing that nobody bought. Um, So think about that. The youngest youngest locomotive is potentially uh, as old or older than any of us. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> oh, how fucking old do you? Okay. Yeah, don't answer that question. Yeah. Don't answer it. Oh, hell yeah. That's that sure, juice. Sure doesn't meet EPA tier four uh, regulations. Uh, anyway, that was the goddamn on. news. Okay. Yeah. I have some news. I have some. Mm. So, it's gone. It's so gone. Fred, I, no, no, I'm going. So you're just going to have to live with it. <laughs> so two things uh, to advertise, I guess. Uh, we never do this. No, you can't buy an ad on the show. These are favors. Uh, so one, uh, you can invest in uh, WTYP prob- uh, fave, uh, the Tropical Hockey League, if you've ever wanted to own your own tropical roller skate hockey team. What? Uh, yeah, yeah. They contacted us. I'm doing this for them. Okay. Uh, remember how we were gonna buy a roller hockey team? No. You gotta check the group chat more, Alice. We weren't gonna <laughs> buy it. We were gonna sponsor it. Oh, were we? Oh, well, yeah. either one. Uh, well, there's your guys. Buck. Yes. <laughs> oh, it's a ball, I think. And number two, a uh, friend of mine, Abigail Sweetman, has a Patreon uh, where she's releasing a cookbook. She already has recipes out. It's called Feed Your Friends. You can Google search for Abigail Sweetman on Patreon. The recipes are super yummy. Go buy them how, or go subscribe to Patreon. Thank you. How do I Google search on Patreon? Or you Google you, search and find your, the Patreon link. Your mind, you know. You guys Google of the mind. You know what? I'm mm. glad you're sick, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Perusing my mind's Dewey Decimal System. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I'm honestly thrilled you're sick. It makes me happy that you're suffering. All right. Now that now that I've been allowed to talk, uh, back to the show. Sorry. Sorry for the fucking inconvenience. Did you play it twice to annoy me? Yeah. (laughs) Great. I love you so much. Can I plug my Patreon too? I mean Yeah, do whatever you want. I don't fuck. All right. Uh I'm under the brand Interurban Era, and you can find me at patreon.com slash interurbanera, where I build scale models and make chill modeling videos for you guys to enjoy. So go stop yeah, by. Yeah, okay, but ha- how many, like, roller hockey or whatever teams do you sponsor? 0.003 roller hockey teams. I, I really like that we were going to sponsor a roller hockey team. I think that's pretty funny. Mm. Mm-hmm. All right. We'll, spon- yeah, we'll sponsor out. whatever you want if it's funny enough. Yeah. Yes. I really can't stress that one enough. And also, we have the money. Which, you know, we may not. I don't know. Depends how this SVB thing goes. Oh, yeah. So, in a way, way, Joe Biden is sponsoring both a short track racing team and a roller (laughs) hockey team. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, you owe me after the bankruptcy bill of 2005, Joe. Motherfucker. Very good. All right. Student loans. Yeah, let's do the podcast. Yeah, sorry, everybody. All right. The thing we're here to talk about. Let's start with the basics, shall we? Seventy nine is a weird number. Why do most passenger yes. trains go this speed in the United States now? 
this is part of this wreck and its legacy. Yes. Um, uh, is, this... is it because it seems like the uh, like yes. lowest number, the, the, the closest to AC, I the same way the stuff is yeah, 99 cents a... instead of a dollar? Yeah, I bet there was a train going 80 miles an hour, and they were like, if we take it down by one, <laughs> yeah. it's safe. Honestly, it, it probably has grounds in the way trains are scheduled as well. Like, uh, you would have a train depart Union Station at 12.03, not 12 noon, so you wouldn't be confused whether it's midnight or midday. So okay. this mm. would probably follow the same logic of you're paying extra attention. It's not 80, which you could fudge up to five miles an hour in either direction. You're going 79, so you don't uh, hit the emergencies by uh, overspeeding. So in this case, this is on the BNSF, probably between Portland and Seattle. Uh, this is on the Burlington Northern side of the Bay. You can see the top one says T-79. That's for Talgo equipment, uh, a whole nother, yeah. well, there's your problem episode. Uh, that's below a, that's that a is, tilting train, yeah, uh, which theoretically is supposed to be allowed to go faster. <laughs> yes. Uh, below that is P for passenger at 79. So similarly engineered, you're good to go. And so good bottom, thing we invested in that tilting equipment. Yeah, all your tax dollars <laughs> yeah. at work. Um, and at the bottom is freight at 60 miles an hour. So this is actually a pretty nicely engineered stretch of track. Uh, oh, there's a lot of places in the United States that are under 50 and a lot that are even under 25 miles an hour. Boy, yeah. how did, does that inspire confidence? Oh, My yeah. favorite is a stretch between the border at Rouse's Point and uh, Montreal which has one curve, it's 30 miles, and the speed limit is 25 miles an hour. Oh, the good old oh. Blue Ridge Parkway approach. Yep. <laughs> Miserable. <laughs> My favorite one of all is the approach to uh, Portland Union Station goes across the Steel Bridge, and it's speed mile an hour. Do you want, guys want to guess what it is? I'm going 10. Lower. Two. Two? It's six miles an hour to go across six the miles an hour. I was right the first time. I had it. <laughs> but yeah, it, Jeopardy it's rules or whatever. Is that Jeopardy? I don't know. What no, else? that'd be Price is Right. Price is Right. Price is Right. I don't so, care. So how do they determine that number? The hint is corruption. <laughs> you they they paid corruption? off the guy doing the formula. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, kid, here's $79. If you catch my trip. <laughs> yeah, nice exponent. Be ashamed if something happened to it. Right? So before the Napierville wreck, uh, speeds around the United States, uh, this is before 1946, mind you, speeds uh, across United States rail service on main lines varied. Uh, but in some stretches, including on the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy, could get up to 110, wow. 110 or even more. Uh, most mm. were often below 80, in fact. So this is not this is not such a spicy, like, oh my god, giant conspiracy to slow down trains uh, back then, at least. But it's something to keep in mind. Um, Cl another... Claims to invent locomotive that's first to 100 can't drive it anywhere. Interesting. This is to, mm -hmm. this is to protect women's uteruses. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Otherwise, they're, they're flying be... out of there. Yeah. <laughs> So there's I a, had one of those. Right. So there's a couple of, uh, of important things about speed. It's not like in a car where you like want to get up to around 65 miles an hour and hold it and keep going. Uh, typically, especially with passenger trains, you have to stick to a timetable. If you go too fast, you have to wait at the next station until you're on time. So it's, it's irrelevant. So track speed is just the wow. fastest safe 
along did that get, route to maintain did you the get scratched timetable. By the cat, Roz. No, no, I got bit by uh, Pizza oh. Boy. Oh, are you okay? I, yeah. Ow. No, I did it again. Put him out in the put him out in the hallway. Oh uh, no, he's doing it again. Oh my god. <laughs> You're very silly. He's fine. He's just antsy because he he's never been fed before in his life. Oh, that's true. Mm, that's true. Yeah. You do laugh at him when he's hungry. It's true. Yeah. You say, ha ha, ha ha, you have no thumbs. He's got a whole hour and twelve minutes before he gets fed. Oh, that's uh, a sweet boy. I know just how he feels. Mm-hmm. So anyways, uh, yes. that's basically Please. the difference between uh, timetable speed and posted track speed. Uh, that's about as much as you need to know for layman's point, point of view. Um, signaling and safety before 1946 was a haphazard array of whatever a specific railroad. And believe me, there oh, were no, dozens. Really? Yeah, there were dozens of class ones in the United States, not just four back then. So every mechanical department had their own idea of what they think they should use. And it was oh, all the, like different competing standards. Yeah. Uh, meme, I was right? thinking yeah. the different like different banks if we're issuing different currencies. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. pre and post grouping for the UK folk. You know, it's it was absurd. Um, and so certain railroads had money they could spend on safety shit, um, which included all sorts. Yeah. Pennsylvania, New York Central, Santa Fe. Uh, the CB&Q, um, the Illinois Central, any of the SPUP roads as well. They all had money back then, at least, to spend on this stuff. Uh, can um, you guys hear that? I'm so sorry. I can, my door is open. Uh, in my, do you hear what I believe is the now Disney movie Anastasia? In my a little mic? bit, yeah. That's, okay, that's Disney? Fucking hell. Um, it's Disney fine. now. That's yeah. Fox. Yeah. Century Fox. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. One second. I'll be right back. Keep going, Miles. Sure. Good, good, okay. good movie, though. So, uh, couple... I don't know. I think it's inherently reactionary. Oh, it's, of course it is. It's like yeah. Rasputin used magic to make the Bolsheviks do the thing. But yeah. when I was a little girl, I wanted to be Anastasia when I grew up, right? And that's the like only like Disney esque movie that I had that for. So okay. it still holds a place in my heart. I yeah, can't believe exactly. my wife doesn't respect my recording time. <laughs> so becoming a wife guy is is difficult, you know. For <laughs> yeah, being a wife guy is difficult when your wife has such terrible goddamn taste in movies. You're not married yet. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> that's that's your common law wife. You I'm know? not doing a fiance guy. I'm not being that fucking dude. <laughs> Fix again. Fix it again, Tony, the wife. Oh no, yeah. fiance. I thought you said fiat guy. Never mind. I, I am fiat kind wife. of a fiat guy. Yeah. Fiat, fiat wife uterus breaks down by the side of the road a lot. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry your wife Pulling is rusted. We have to tow her uterus back to the uh, the, the the Italian garage, the uterus well, the garage. Worst part, the worst part about having a fiat wife is the Soviet Union has copied your wife in a way that is like well, she's very worse but slightly more resilient. You know? Yeah. Except yeah. their wife is is made out of rust. Yeah, yeah, because they bought used Soviet Union steel secondhand in the '60s and then loosely screwed it together by communists. Yeah, uh, my wa- actually, I've been I've been I've been sleeping with a turban this entire time. <laughs> Anyways, so just, just reminded of well, I forget which podcast that uh, Nate Bethay was on describing the acronym for Dodge. 
Oh, Dick uh, on Dick Gay Entertainment. Yeah, yeah. Dick on that was Dick Gay Entertainment. That was Trashfuture. <laughs> when we discovered when we discovered homophobic truck owner memes, uh, yeah. wow. and it was like, oh, actually, Dodge stands for like Dick on Dick Gay Entertainment, or like GMC stands for like Gay Men's Cocks, and like there's a bunch of memes that are like, hey, sorry, you can't park your Ford truck out here in case people think it's a gay bar. Like, wow. it's it, like so juvenile a homophobia that it becomes funny again. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> so, signaling and safety before 1946 was uh, a haphazard array of railroad-specific uh, signaling and stopping ways. You had two types of signals, semaphore, the little waggy hand one, and searchlight or color position light, whatever involves a stoplight-esque signal. Um, mm. Beyond hey, that... Hey, Miles. Yes. Question. Yeah, I'm getting a lot of echo from you. Are you sure you're on the right yeah. microphone? Do you want to There's like... a lot of echo from someone. I'm uh, not getting echo. Okay. Uh, I moved my mic. Is that better? No, so, uh, I, I don't think it's you. Miles, it's only when Miles something. is talking. I've got headphones on. Uh, okay. It's yeah, I, I can't understand why maybe that was, would why that would be so it unless was... it's like maybe drawing from the wrong microphone. Do you have like a webcam yeah. mic on? Yeah. No, I'm using a webcam mic right now. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. All right, fine. Well, the echo is gone now, so. I wonder okay. if it was me, in which case I apologize. My, no my mic, I realized, was super close to my headphones. Oh. I don't, I don't worry too much. Yeah, I'm not. Okay. I never do. Yeah, mm. so you had searchlights, you had semaphores. Uh, you had, uh, sometimes you had derails, like we saw in the news article, to protect sightings and other things from overruns. Uh, sometimes they had install a switch that immediately go to, went into the ballast for that on certain what? operations. You see that what do you, a lot. What does that mean? You see that a lot in Japan. So, like, imagine a siding uh, uh, with yes. switches on either end. But okay, yes. right before the switches that enter the main line, there are two more switches to derail uh, the train in either direction to prevent head-on collisions into the sidings for each. Okay. Okay. Thank you. So, oh, okay. Four cool. switches so it's total. just like you—you you, yeah. you get to go onto you get to go in the forest now, or right, whatever. You just go yeah. over here for yeah. a minute, right? Mm -hmm. I'll deal with you when I can deal with you. Yeah. Yeah, I'm confident that actually saves lives. It seems like it would be a very good way to avoid a cornfield meet, which is the next thing we should talk about. So, uh, in classic railroad slang, a cornfield meet is typically when two locomotives run head-on into each other in the middle of a cornfield. Um, so what happened in Greece can... most recently, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. So... Uh, it's more it, of an olive olive uh, grove. Yeah, yeah you, you did that. Yeah, you you did already that. made yeah. that joke. Don't worry. Yeah, but this is a different episode. <laughs> no, oh. Normally, what happens is people only listen to one and then never another one, which is yeah, something yeah, we're really trying to boost we on suck. this one. <laughs> Thirty-four minutes in, yeah. So basically, those were ways that you could uh, prevent uh, disaster, more or less, in 1946. Since then, other modern technologies like positive train control, automatic train stop, which was pioneered in the 1920s, and we'll talk about later. Uh, but more or less, this is the same thing. Run, train runs red signal, automatically throws it into emergency, is basically the logic circuit for that. So you run a red light. Imagine driving a car, you run a red light, and automatically your car's computer slams on the brakes with the full brake application. Yeah. That's how it works. All right, cool. uh, next slide. Should do that. Should make that real. What is a streamliner? Why are you saying it like a Nazi, man? Because <laughs> it is 
bright and shiny, just like the glory. No, never mind. Um, Jesus! I was building a very normal train, and then it yeah, I mean, the, the, is a good fucking uh, designer. Words. I don't know how to say the, the, the password is called designed, or indeed what the verb for designed is. So. Design, yeah, designing, uh, design. What uh, yeah. the, the flying hamburger German, was one of the first uh, streamliners. So mm. yeah, uh, so basically, wind splitting, as it was known around the turn of the century, uh, oh, that sounds was the basic uh, idea boring. to re reduce uh, you know friction through the air, as you talked about in your F one hundred and four episode. Um, it had both obvious aesthetic benefits of looking really cool, but it also helped moderately, very marginally, with fuel efficiency and other things. Uh, you're looking at the Burlington Zephyr, what is cons what is far and away the most famous of the firsts. While there were many earlier designs, including streamlined steam locomotives, uh, the McKean motor car, which was an early wind splitter design, and wooden and steel interurban electric uh, trains that had uh, aerodynamic noses attached to them. This is the one that captured oh, the world by storm. Uh, they made a film about it, the first version of Silver Streak in 1934, not starring Richard Pryor. Um, uh, it went on a tour all around the country. Uh, this particular engine, the Pioneer Zephyr, which you're looking at right now, uh, set brand new speed records well above uh, 110 miles an hour uh, for diesel trains and and to this day, holds the Denver to Chicago speed record, which remains unbroken today. Um, it was an immense zeitgeist. Many other railroads copied. Some had exact duplicates, like Boston and Maine. Uh, they had the Minuteman. Uh, but the Q was basically the only railroad that rostered precisely this type of equipment. The advantages of the streamliner design, especially here, is that it is a diesel multiple unit, which means the front blank area behind the three windows where the railway post office are, or in front of it, uh, there's a six-cylinder Winton 201 uh, distillate engine that runs on grain alcohol. I kid you not. Not diesel. No. Oh, hmm. brother. Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> um, it runs clean. It ran really well. Grain alcohol. They were super reliable, uh, amazingly. Um, and then... Down underneath, uh, it went to uh, the single truck in the front, which had two traction motors, uh, electric traction motors. So much like a diesel locomotive, a diesel electric locomotive is today. Um, these were married, uh, part of a married pair. You can see that they're held together with Jacob's bogies uh, between each uh, car versus having two sets of trucks underneath each car. Um, it reduced maintenance and allowed it to accelerate and decelerate faster and more efficiently. Uh, this exact engine you can go visit in the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. It is unbelievably gorgeous, both inside and out, and I highly recommend going to see it. Hmm. Okay, uh, next slide. Okay, you... so by 1946, the idea of streamliners had matured to the point where that single diesel multiple unit wasn't going to cut the mustard with longer trains. So they went to EMD. How much and... longer are trains getting at this point? We're talking so that, like a that's... fact of two or three, or...? So, it just depends. Uh, heavyweight cars, which we'll talk about later, there were longer trains that could go into the 20 and 30 car consist length sometimes. Often they would yeah. be broken down into second and third sections, which we'll also talk about later. So 10 to 15 cars is typically how long uh, a consist, uh, a steam-powered or early diesel-powered streamlined yeah. train would be. Yeah. 
Yeah, the, Z- uh, the Zephyr was the abnormally short one. Uh, even back when the, the 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 Pioneer Zephyr was built, your typical train was much large, longer than that uh, passenger train. <laughs> so they went back to EMD. Uh, by the way, Bud, our hero, and EMC, mm-hmm. or eventually became EMD, built the Zephyr. This is an EMD E5A, the only type, uh, only rostered by the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy. E3s and E6s, which look similar, were rostered by other roads. This is the only one that has a full stainless steel outer frame and the only one with fluting. It's unbelievably gorgeous. Uh, these were about, I think, 1,600 horsepower each, and you can see there's a B unit, which has a no cab, which is behind it. Um, these will be paired together in many different combinations of sets, one of which is ABBA, for your Swedish music fans there. Um, <laughs> to pull increasingly longer or shorter passenger trains depending on the tonnage. So you'd stick one engine if it was a short train or up to six or eight units if it was a super long train. Uh, this beautiful E5 hauled the train of the ill-fated wreck. You can also visit a the last E5 ever built at the Illinois Railway Museum in Union, Illinois. So let's go on to the exposition flyer. Uh, I was just going to say a fun fact about the nose of this thing. Uh, this is the only, uh, of the many uh, locomotives which shared a similar sort of Art Deco streamlined nose like this one, this is the only one that's entirely made of metal because they paid extra to get it done that way so they'd get the stainless steel look. Um, all your other like E units and F units, they're only partially metal. They got a frame underneath and then these sort of nice curves and stuff are all done up in Bondo. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> what welded steel plates? And then, what? <laughs> yeah. So it was welded yeah. steel plates, like a like a card modeling kit, and then they would smooth all the joints with bondo after they ground the welds. Beautiful, yeah. beautiful. I love trains. Yeah, that's, that's why they're all painted, so you can't see the bondo. <laughs> yeah, quite literally, it's like modern airliners. Oh, you imagine the amount of bondo on those things? My mm-hmm. God. <laughs> It'd be funny if they actually put Bondo on airliners. <laughs> I'll buff out uh, 600 right, miles an hour. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, Ryanair. Uh, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. They're using hot glue. They yeah, can't afford Bondo. Glue. Yes, but very hot glue. That's how you know it's safe. Yeah. <laughs> the hottest glue. All right. So let's right. talk about the expo- the exposition flyer, which was the train that it was uh, where the train that was involved in this wreck in 1946. About to say the exhibition flyer is the the one for uh, that's the swingers train. <laughs> oh baby, <laughs> painting over this big thing of Bondo, the giant pineapple. It's a huge. It's a whole other meaning to uh, buffet lounge. Oh god! <laughs> oh come on. That was actually very good. I'm very proud of you. <laughs> Thank you. You're disgusting. <laughs> so here's a timetable from the, the time in which the Burlington was running this train. And here is a picture of the exposition flyer uh, upon wi- uh, basically around the date that it ran. You can see behind the two gleaming E5s, there's a bunch of older 1920s era heavyweight baggage cars, mail express cars, and other things. And then towards the back, there's some more streamlining uh, recognizable stainless steel cars, usually built by Bud. Uh, or Pullman Standard or uh, American Car and Foundry. So what? why was the exposition flyer? Why did it exist? Um, it was designed to connect Chicago with San Francisco. And they were holding 
the 1939 Golden Gate International Exposition. So it was a way to get from here to there. Um, we have to talk about real quick. So today on Amtrak, you would take the California's effort. Same route. Back then, there was so much demand for passenger that you would run more than one section of a train. So you would have a train that you would get on at, say, 8.05, and that was the advance section. So it's a whole train that runs ahead of schedule that you jump on. Then there was the 8.30 train, which would be the advertised exposition flyer, for instance. Then, if there was more demand, you would run second, third, and fourth sections, which were identical trains spaced out in time. Same day, same departure, same arrival, all perfectly engineered to get you there on time without having to uh, gouge like airline fees, increasingly more expensive things. You would just get on one of the sections and be there. So that's important for the later in the story. Um, the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy just after World War II uh, experienced the height of its tonnage in passenger car and uh, freight tonnage mileage. Um, the railroads were in better condition after World War II than they will ever be. Oh. Um, the track mileage uh, per ton mile was insane at that point. All the stuff was in, uh, was hauled by extremely powerful, ex extremely beautiful equipment, honestly. Um, and the network of passenger service the CB&Q provided was one of the most extensive in the country, serving tiny towns with little doodlebug motor cars all the way up to the gleaming zephyrs. So let's go to the next slide. But it wasn't just the Chicago, Burlington, Quincy. They were The Quincy did not go all the way to San Francisco, please. Um, it collaborated with two other railroads to get all the way to San Francisco. The Rio Grande traded off in Colorado and went through the Rockies and not around them. And then in Salt Lake City, traded over the entire train consist minus the locomotives in both cases over to the Western Pacific, who took it across the Nevada desert over through and through Feather River Canyon, which is a gorgeous way to get through the Sierras, and down into the tidewater uh, leading to San Francisco Bay. Um, it ended in the beautiful uh, uh, Mole, which is a large dock where you would connect with a ferry that would take you right to downtown San Francisco from Oakland in like 12 minutes. It was fantastic. Uh, you can see here, this is actual promotional material from uh, the exposition flyer in the era in which we're looking. You can see the happy, smiling sun guiding this mm -hmm. steam-hauled passenger train all the way from beautiful Chicago to wonderful San Francisco. Um, and you can see the egregious uh, use of too many typefaces on one piece. Oh, I kind of like material. it. It's, it's yeah, very like busy. It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, Leave it old would... man winner. Ice and snow <laughs> disappear like magic when you go west on the exposition flyer, the speedy scenic <laughs> route to sunny California. Oh, no change of cars. Standard and Taurus Pullman's lounge car for all sleeping class, <laughs> sleeping car passengers, luxurious reclining chair cars, all air conditions, delicious meals at sensible prices. Hostess, let's say hostess nurse service. Yes, in case you were sick. Oh, oh, uh, this is definitely a swing of thing. This is a swing of thing. Yeah, yeah, I, I show me your mommy milkers is what I'm saying. <laughs> Christ. Um, <clears throat> So this arrangement worked extremely well and would continue on with the, uh, the Western Pacific, Rio Grande, and CB&Q California Zephyr after the exposition flyer was canceled uh, many years later. 
So let's go to the next slide. Okay, here's Folks, some if more. you think we're flying through these slides, don't worry. I just checked, and there's 40 of them. Cool. <laughs> yeah, but we'll get through them quick. Um, yeah. Here's some more beautiful material showing uh, uh, Western Pacific steam locomotive hauling ass through the desert, presumably. Um, and I found these wonderful matchbooks that have these beautiful typefaces on them. That's really so, cool. Now, Th let me make a distinction. This is something the noir detective finds on your body. Yes. Uh, Free pillows. You. This is a swigger thing. They are yeah. sucking and fucking on the ex <laughs> on, on the exposition flyer. <laughs> so like here's an important distinction. Flyer. That was Whoa. Like, God damn it! You beat me to it. Well done. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you, you I, I have a very sexy disorder. What do I call it, uh, Kiff? Sex Lexia. <laughs> Lexia. Yeah. No extra fare. Wow. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's a distinction that should be explained. Uh, the Pullman company used to gouge customers with Pullman fare, which was more expensive, but offered delightful things like, you know, wonderful bedding and actually comfortable beds and free meals aboard the train. Like it actually was worth the money, but it was more expensive by a considerable margin. Um, so one thing you have to realize with uh, privately owned passenger service versus today's nationalized Amtrak service is that a lot of trains often would be kept within a single railroad. It was not uncommon to have railroads cooperate like this for the exposition flyer uh, or the California Zephyr later on. Um, but now that Amtrak has nationalized the system, this is no longer necessary. So let's get on to the next slide. So here's the route map real quick. You can see Chicago on the right-hand side and you can see San Francisco on the left. And it goes, uh, rather conveniently sweeping through, uh, it is definitely not that straight or sweeping, believe me. Um, but I it gives you say a pretty... we got sort of a Chicago to New York electric airline situation here. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. But the simplified map actually does a pretty good job. So you can see what happens. Uh, I believe the things circled down there are where the crew change points and the railroad change points are. So you can kind of get an idea. The three circles there are basically in the center of the map is where the uh, CB&Q uh, hands it off to the Rio Grande. And then that little hot dog shaped thing in uh, Salt Lake is uh, where the Western Pacific would hand off the train. Um, so let's go to the next slide. But this is what you're actually going to see. This unbelievable uh, World's Fair, which was a perfect complement to the uh, New York World's Fair, basically. A lot of people went to both uh, while it was open. Um, immense, immense amounts of people went to go see both of these uh, millions and millions of people. Um, mm. This was built out in the middle of San Francisco Bay on a fill, and uh, it had a very particular type of architecture that was developed ex uh, precisely for this event called Pacifica-style architecture, sort of, uh, how shall I say it, uh, Pacific Rim meets... Um, Art Deco, very beautiful, but it didn't stick. So this is one of the only places on Earth you can see that version of the architecture. Uh, the tower featured in the flyer there uh, was demolished, but the beautiful um, administration building, little hot uh, horseshoe-shaped thing in the center of the image, and the two seaplane hangers still exist today. The rest has been wiped. Oh, imagine getting a seaplane to this, though. You That'd could. Uh, a lot of people, the Pan Am terminal was uh, uh, was here and also in Alameda. So you could take a Boeing 314 flying clipper all the way Ugh. from anywhere in the Pacific to here to go look at this beautiful um, uh, Golden Gate International Exposition. 
I've never heard the Tartarian architecture people talk about this one. Yeah, it's a cool one. Uh, <laughs> it's 1939. It's, a... it's June 1939. You yeah. are getting uh, a flying boat to go see this shit. Everything is going to be fine forever. It's the end of history, brackets, 1939 edition. Yeah. I was about to say that depression was almost winding up. Uh, uh, you know, and, um, as long as you're not paying attention to the news from like yeah. Europe at all. Uh, yeah, that's it's over good, there, right? though. <laughs> yeah. It was a very hopeful uh, event, as you might imagine. Most world fairs tend to be, regardless of macro political events. But yeah, this one was a uniquely amazing one. I really have to say they, they did a great job. In the next slide, we'll see how the island was built. Um, this could be its own, well, there's your problem episode because it's now radioactive thanks to some fun stuff that happened in the Cold War. And it was completely <laughs> hydraulically dredged with that dredger you see in the upper right, um, where they would just like basically- Like the Mark Twain steamboat. <laughs> yeah. All the dredgers, even to, to, until today, look like that in the Bay Area. If wow. they aren't the regular like crane type that has the big clamshell bucket, it's one of these guys. Um, they're fantastic. But yeah, they just sucked up the sand and presumably uh, flora and fauna on the bottom of San Francisco Bay and pooped it out to create Treasure Island. Pooped it out. Cool. Uh, in the next slide, we can see, this is just a timetable. You guys, if you really care about timetables, guys, you can pause this episode and look at it, but it's not <laughs> essential. Um, and then some of the other beautiful scenery you roll through, you roll through the the beautiful Rocky Mountains there. Uh, both these pictures are of the exposition flyer in the steam era, uh, when it was hauled with uh, steam locomotives, including this gorgeous Rio Grande steam locomotive uh, through this spectacular scenery. Um, and then in our oh, next there was slide, a Missouri Pacific uh, section as well from St. Louis. Yeah, which is pretty cool. A lot of connecting sleepers and stuff yeah. to kind of tee into the service so you can get where you need to go. And then in the next slide, uh, so dieselization occurs right around World War II. Um, a lot of Western roads, because they did not have access to uh, clean water, and I don't, and I mean, we're not talking about polluted water, we're talking about availability of water line, trackside. So right, the right, War right, Production right. Board heavily uh, leaned towards giving diesels to Western railroads that ran through deserts and other dry territory. The Rio Grande. Uh, was a good example. The Santa Fe, the prime example of this. Um, and you can see these uh, beautiful uh, EMD FTs pulling the exposition flyer through Colorado. Uh, Dieselization also had uh, a large impact on obviously how fast the train could run. Now that you don't have to stop for coal slash oil or water, um, you could have crew changes be much wider. And uh, yeah, a fantastic photo. Yeah. yeah, it's gorgeous, isn't it? Um, mm. And I love that early Rio Grande scheme. At any rate, um, it allowed for a much tighter, faster schedule. People were happier. There was less soot coming in through the windows. Um, it was altogether a net improvement for your average passenger, even if it was less exciting than being behind a steam locomotive. It was definitely better for operations. Um, and then in our next slide, we'll bring the two together. Here's the Exposition Flyer hauling its train behind a pair of E5s. This was a couple years before, but take a real close look at this because this is a very important slide in this whole story. So you can see right behind the two gleaming locomotives is a an express box car where you would have just mail. a regular, just a regular shitty box car. Incredible. 
Yeah, you know how well, you not, have aerodynamics? We're going to fuck all of that, you know? <laughs> well, absolutely that. But cool thing about this boxcar, so there's a difference between an Express and a regular. The Express ones have high-speed trucks, and they also have steam through lines for the heating of all the passenger cars. So they were specially built for this kind of thing. Uh, they also, I think, have, okay. in most cases, heavier underframes to handle all that, all that weight going through them. Uh, right behind it is uh, a couple of uh, a couple of baggage cars and a mail storage car. Uh, then a couple more baggage cars, uh, a railway post office where they sorted mail en route. Um, in the 1946 consist, there was a express refrigerator car, then two more baggages, two coaches, one dining car, a parlor lounge, and a final coach on the rear. Um, I have to say, this picture is spectacular. I don't know who had the this foresight to take this. This is on, This is honestly very sick. Yeah. A, sick in a good way. Sick as in good, not sick as in bad. Some of these cars are even air-conditioned. They should all be, actually. Every oh, human... I really like the, like, 1910s car. And then, boom! Stainless right here. Right yeah. smack dab <laughs> in the middle. I'm going to say this. I do not think this car is air-conditioned. Which one? No, oh, that's, the su- uh, that's the no, suffer yeah. box. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's scum class. Yeah. <laughs> you pay hey. your ticket by being sp- by having your face spit on. This was yeah. built as an 80-seat car, but it has 108 seats now. <laughs> so the fun thing about uh, heavyweight cars is the clerestory roof. So you can see in the car to the right of that, it has air conditioning because it has a smooth, roundy roof. Yeah. That one next to it that we we're originally talking about doesn't, and you can see that by the black line above the, separating the roof in half. Yeah. There, um, that's an important <sighs> distinction we'll talk about later. But by 1946, the entire consist was air conditioned. So you can notice also that it's a mix of lightweight and what are called heavyweight cars. So there's a difference we'll talk about later, um, but it is important in how this train wrecked. All right, yeah. so. This is a tr- different sort of transition era, a transition era of different railway cars, not necessarily steam to diesel, but lightweight versus heavyweight. Uh, now, the Exposition Flyer has Miles, a troubled your, your history. Your echo is back a little bit. Yeah, it's really quite bad. Yeah. Oh. The, how's this? No, no, that's no better. Um, uh, I'm really not getting it. That's weird. Hmm. I was, I was getting... Well, then maybe it's Liam. <laughs> it's, it's, been, it's been bad for is me the Liam whole again? time. I, I, really. I have no idea. I have, is this any it's been better? coming I, in and out for me. I have moved my, my headphones from my, my mic uh, about now I'm closer to two and a half, three feet. Is, is that better or worse? Miles, say something. Something. Uh, okay. Yeah, I didn't hear an echo there. Okay. Not sure. Yeah, who knows? I'm, I'm so sorry if it's me. I'm... I'm, I'm okay. Oh, I wouldn't. No I wouldn't. No, no, no. Uh, yeah, don't worry about it. Fix All it right. in post. <clears throat> so this wasn't the first time the Exposition Flyer wrecked. Let's take a look at the first time this happened. Next slide. Hi, it's Justin. Uh, so this is a commercial for the podcast that you're already listening to. Uh, people are annoyed by these, so let me get to the point. We have this thing called Patreon, right? The deal is you give us two bucks a month and we give you an extra episode once a month. Uh, Sometimes it's a little inconsistent, but, you know, it's two bucks. You get what you pay for. Um, It also gets you our full back catalog of bonus episodes 
so you can learn about exciting topics like guns, pickup trucks, or pickup trucks with guns on them. The money we raise through Patreon goes to making sure that the only ad you hear on this podcast is this one. Anyway, that's something to consider if you have two bucks to spare each month. Uh, Join at patreon.com forward slash WTYP pod. Do it if you want. Or don't. It's your decision, and we respect that. Back to the show. During its decade of operation, the flyer had enough wrecks that it became known in some circles as the Explosion Flyer. Oh, that's not nice. You know, you know it's good when you're getting a derisory nickname, you know. Yes. Okay, let me see if I can do this in my 30s radio announcer voice. <clears throat> Yeah. Refilled and head-on collision. A little after <laughs> 10 in the night of September 22nd, the engineer of Western Pacific's crack exposition flyer looked down a stretch of track near Pleasanton, California, and saw the most horrifying sight that can meet a trainman's eyes. There was many, not many yards away, loomed the giant shape of a deadhead, an unattached freight locomotive, hurling him down the single strip of track. Both engineers threw on their brakes. Passengers on the exposition flyer an hour out of Oakland were jarred from their seats. An instant later, both locomotives met head on. A hurricane of escaping steam roared into the cab of the flyer, suffocated and scalded to death the imprisoned engineer and fireman. Both engines left the rails in twisted agonies of hot metal, dragging them, the baggage car, and their two passengers. The flyer's baggage man hurled clear through the front end of his car into a See, this, litter this, of sheared steel. Died guy, in the this, hospital this, like, a few hours later. This this like wire reporter or whatever missed his calling as a Norwegian black metal lyricist. Really? <laughs> Only these three train men were killed. Twelve other persons, nine of them passengers, were injured. The engineer of the freight locomotive had managed to jump after applying the brakes and escaped along with his fireman. Neither could explain the accident. Only official comment was made by a division superintendent on the line as, Evidently, he said, somebody made a serious mistake. (laughs) A boo-boo has occurred. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There was a boo-boo involved incident. So yeah, that's a cornfield meat, folks. It doesn't get any more gruesome than that. Corn or field or meat than that. Uh, so the, the, the engineer was they... involved in an oops-type situation. Yeah. <laughs> they call it a cornfield meat because that's what you get turned into when the locomotive hits you. Cornmeal. <laughs> yeah. Corn-fed. Cornfield meat. So let's go on to the reason this ex- the episode exists. 44 dead, engineer held, say, says the newspaper. By, today. by, by whom? Like in someone's arms? Like yeah, for, for, for comfort? Or... Yes. So uh-huh. they, they basically uh, slapped handcuffs on him in the in the hospital, more or less. Cool, okay. Um. So, uh, Justin, can you read uh, the Fern Heft one? Uh, Center top. Fern Heft, a reporter for the Naperville Sun, who was at her home a block away from the scene, said bodies literally were squeezed from the windows of the last coach. Miss Hoft said she was leaving for her office when she heard the crash, which sounded like a big explosion, followed by a lot of smaller explosions. Wow. Yeah, she didn't really have the sort of Norwegian black metal gift yeah. of lyricism. You I was know? about to say. 
a large boulder like a train size, crash a, 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 a small boulder the size of a large boulder yep um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly but yeah it was plastered all over uh, predictably all over the newspapers the next day um sensationalist writing uh, abounded uh, if you want to pause the video and look at some of them i think they're clear enough to read but a yes. lot of them were pretty pretty gruesome honestly uh let's go to the next slide but what actually happened? So <clears throat> uh, a train three minutes ahead of it had stopped because there was an undercarriage issue. Um, so they noticed some debris flying from underneath Rams. the car and uh, slammed into emergency. Um, uh, you, you see on the second picture here, the, the, the train has just kind of devoured the train in front of it. It's like, yes. mm, delicious yes. train. Nom, 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 nom. Exactly. So because they were so tightly scheduled, just three Split minutes open apart... the car to get the delicious cornfield meats inside. Exactly. <laughs> um, <clears throat> because they were just three minutes apart, the uh, flagman had to jump on the ground and did not have time to go the required distance to uh, properly flag down the uh, the train behind it. So it ran so, into the... Hold on. Are what? we are we getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here? Uh also, Why was the train three minutes ahead of the other train? <laughs> ah, signaling and uh, how shall I say it? Scheduling. So yeah. the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy was actually quite good at running its railroad. Um, it was confident that three-minute headways for large and heavy passenger trains like that were acceptable. And honestly, millions of, of passenger miles uh, decade, for decades before this proved that it was all right. It's, However, it's it, you know it's it's precision scheduling. What could go wrong? In a way, yes. Uh, timetable train order in this case, but very much the same plot. So it was acceptable. Um, there's an important part of why this wreck occurred in the first place, and the engineer of the train that rammed the rear of the first train was not paying attention. He blew through a red signal. There were no automatic train stop or any other forms other than line side. Traffic lights, if you will, line side signals. So by the time he had reached the, uh, he went through a yellow and didn't notice it. He went through a red, which is about where the middle of that thing is. Um, and by then it was too late. Now, much like a stop a stop light on a, a road, you have to be stopped right at the red. But of course, he was already going over forty miles an hour. Uh, by then, he applied some of the train brake, but didn't throw it into emergency, and it rammed into the last few cars of the train. What, what I was trying to get out here is the, the the exposition flyer today was very crowded, um, so they ran the advance exposition flyer mm -hmm. three minutes before the regular exposition flyer, um, which is why these trains were so close together. And this is very not not very far out of Chicago Union Station at all. These are both westbound trains. Uh, important context here for why they're running these trains so close together at high speed. Yes, and perfectly put. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk uh, in the next slide about flagging. Uh, no, it is not gay hanky code, although... I, I was about to make the joke, you know? You, oh. you, you're, you're flagging down the fucking Swingers Express. Um, exactly. You have like a black handkerchief in your right hand pocket. Yeah, sure. So without getting into minutia, basically, if trains stop, a brakeman on the rear end of the train hops off of the flag or a red lantern and walks at least uh, a quarter mile or more a, down the, the track. What the hell is a red flag? 
That... It's literally a flag that is red. Blood play. No, no, no. Uh, oh, it's fisting, apparently. Oh. Oh. Oh, you mean in the hanky code, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because obviously, if it's if, if it had been a yellow flag, it'd be like, oh, okay, he's telling the train he's a piss. But like, I yeah. I see. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. Typically, if you were running three minutes apart, this would be a totally fine thing. He could walk the distance, flag down the train, train stops, everybody's alive. But mm-hmm. because they were running such a tight schedule, it didn't work quite that way. Um, you can see on the right, there's the actual uh, prescribed rules in the General Code of Operation book about how to flag. If you want to really dive into that, you can pause and take a look. Um, what I'm in the more next... interested by is that on the left here, we, we see the guy's uniform, and he appears to be he appears to have like service stripes, which mm. I know railroads ran on sort of like paramilitary lines, but that's yeah. that's really something. Yeah, so those were typically, I believe, awarded for years of service versus valor or, you know, uh, mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah, yeah. So that yeah. guy probably, I don't, I can't see how, I uh, can't see the pips, how many there are, but I'm sure it's He's got probably three over... service drives, so like 15 years, maybe? Uh, which is a lot of fisting. Probably 30, honestly. Oh. Yeah, he's an oldie. Um, but most of these people were lifers. I mean, in this case, some of the people on board were lifers, but they didn't know it yet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, exactly. So let's take a look at the before and after of what happens when a streamlined E5 locomotive runs into the back of a passenger train. Uh, you you have a horrific slice of bacon uh, out of the uh, conductor's side. So keep in mind that trains, the driver's side is on the opposite of American automobiles. So the engineer's side is ostensibly okay, although the glass shattered, and it wasn't FRA safety glass at that point, so big glass shards. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, uh, but but this other guy has had a train through the face. Yeah. No, it's not good. Through the face. Mm-hmm. So you can see the front truck is gone. Uh, the ICC report shows that the, the truck basically yeeted from underneath the uh, locomotive. Oh, tactical term? Yes, yeah. mm-hmm. absolutely. Oh, okay. Irappropriate uh, railway terminology right there. Uh, but you can see the immense damage uh, that that locomotive is. Although, <sighs> comparatively, think about it. That's not too bad from a front-end wreck perspective. We've, Rear end? We've kind of... We've, we've done stuff with, with Gareth before um, about crashworthiness, and one thing I've learned from that is that the integrity of the outside of it matters very little if everyone on the inside is corned beef. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, big, believe... very rigid sort of tank uh, around which, you know, a bunch of shards of glass and, like, other train are, like, flying around. So here's an important public safety announcement uh, to use for this wreck. Uh, the engineer instructed the brakeman in the locomotive to jump. He jumped, and he died. Ew. So he did not survive. Uh, he was trying to save his life, and it didn't work out. So just be careful. Don't jump off of moving equipment, especially not above five miles an hour. Wall Street uh, I, I like sort of si- do it faster. Yeah, and I feel like sort of Scylla and Charybdis at this point, right? Like, do you want to die uh, jumping, or do you want to die getting a train through the face? Didn't the engineer and uh, uh, fireman survive, though? Uh, one of them did. One of them didn't. So, mm. we can go to the next uh, slide. Uh, I wrote in the description here, opened like a fucking hot pocket. Um, Is that how you yes. open a hot pocket? You just dive in, sort of like nose first? 
Absolutely. So I eat it. Yeah. The only way to get, to get like, burns. Have you ever eaten, burns, uh, yeah. Have you ever eaten a hot pocket else? No, never. Uh, we don't. Yeah, that... The closest thing in terms of temperature is, uh, I would say, pop tarts, which we do have and manage to get the sort of like. 500 degree heat on the inside, uh, room temperature on the outside sort of vibe. Um, okay. So, this, uh, so the E5 rammed through the rearmost coach here. Uh, these cars are 85 feet long, and there's probably only 15 feet of that car left. You can see it completely peeled away. Uh, it's pretty horrific by any standard. Uh, obviously, most of the deaths that occurred, we'll go into the numbers, uh, in a little bit, uh, occurred in this car. Oh yeah, your soup. Yeah, you, yeah you're yeah, sort of you're, like you're now soup. a coating for the front of the locomotive, you know? Uh, yes. Gravy. Yeah, pretty horrific. Um, other people, of course, an immense amount of people were injured on both trains, uh, and other deaths occurred throughout the consist, but the bulk of them were in this car, horrifically enough. Hmm. Um, so let's take a look at the next slide. This is probably the most spectacular picture of all. This is an aerial shot that shows exactly what happened and how it happened. You can see the uh, lead locomotive is completely buried in the center of the frame underneath all those passenger cars. Uh, you can also see the lightweight coach, the Bud stainless steel car, uh, on its side and mostly ripped in half um, in the center, the lighter colored car. And a heavyweight car shoved off to the left side as well. Um, you can see what little is left of the car the uh, lead locomotive plowed into there. Uh, but also, like, look at all of the crowd that came to see this. It's kind of fascinating in its horror. Yeah, the whole town turned out to see, like, how many people had been turned to gravy. Yeah. 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 Um, so there were 45 deaths at the end, uh, 125 We just didn't injured. believe in, like, we didn't believe in controlling scenes at that point. You wanted yeah. to show up, you, you show up. You you know? Know? Yeah. We'll, we'll deal with you. One of the things. Come, come the... look at the horrible, horrible thing that happened. Yes. Try some rings yeah. off somebody, you know? Yeah. We're not going to stop you. Whatever. It's like one cop. souvenir. Yeah. Yeah. One of the accounts uh, in the paper described the bodies being uh, uh, lined up like sticks. I, I need to move this cat. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Let's get back to the major back picture. Where, where, where were we? <sighs> up, up, up. There you oh, There we are. There you are. Okay. Incredible. <clears throat> yeah. So very horrific scene. Um, the Red Cross was actually quick on the scene and took all the bodies out of the destroyed passenger car first. And they filled three morgues in and around Naperville with these. Wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> following this wreck, four different investigations ensued. First, uh, actually, we'll go into the, the four different ones later. But... Uh, first and foremost, the DuPage County Coroner's Inquest recommended that manslaughter charges be filed against the engineer for the exposition flyer. He was charged but not taken into custody as he was in the hospital at the time, but he wouldn't recover enough to be directly questioned in any of the investigations. Yikes. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Um, they managed to clean the wreck up fairly quickly, and uh, the, the triple track, what was known as the racetrack just outside Naperville, uh, was running fairly quickly after the wreck. Uh, we can go into the next picture. Ooh. That's a that's jagged, sort of good. sharp angles there, you know? 
Yeah, it's pretty horrific. You can see the side swipe, the broken windows. Uh, one of the accounts uh, said that there was a severed leg dangling out of one of the windows of one of the coaches. Like, it was pretty, it was pretty macabre. Um, you got a bunch of people standing on top of the car who were just like loafing around. Yeah, those are yeah. just regular people. It doesn't even look like they're there for the wreck. Uh, this recovery. like, hey, kid, you want to see a dead body? Well, yeah, of course I do. <laughs> you, want see, you want to see a leg? So let's go to the next slide. So here in the foreground, we have a 1915 built uh, Northern Pacific heavyweight car. Uh, what does that mean necessarily? So these older cars were built out of riveted steel. Um, in this case, uh, it has a, an underframe that is made out of riveted steel that is then filled with cement. So this this provided rigidity, much like a skyscraper, basically. But you hid concrete, all of the... not cement. It's concrete. Ah. <laughs> Enlighten us about the difference. Concrete has cement in it. Yeah. But concrete is cement, aggregate, water, admixtures, uh, and then you let it set. Cement is just what you make concrete out of. Oh, I'm very, okay. very specific. I'm very precise about these terms because I, I, I. I <laughs> I went to I went to university for this. I paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to know this. <laughs> well, I'm very proud of you. Alice sounds like she's gonna murder us. I I feel uh, well. The thing is, I, I have two things in mind. First of all, I'm thinking of myself, who is very tired, and and second of all, I'm thinking of Devon. Uh, hi, Devon. How's it going? Uh, I'm I, I I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. So we can look at this. Uh, 1915 era built Northern Pacific heavyweight coach. These are the uh, these are the earlier ones. The typical heavyweight coach you see or the Pullman sleepers are built in the 20s. So you can see the little arches underneath the Northern Pacific yeah. lettering. There used to be beautiful stained glass uh, in there, and in some cases, depending on the rebuild, they were entombed. And so when the cars were restored, they found the stained glass in them. However, obviously mm. this one was cut up for scrap right on the scene, yeah. um, <laughs> as you would imagine. You can see uh, the vestibule of the uh, lightweight stainless steel coach uh, on the right above that guy's head in the uh, two-tone jacket, uh, which is a bit scary. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> and you can see more loafers in and on, on top of the and around. Yeah, the there's equipment. like uh, there's yeah. like you know uh, twenty people in this photo, and like three of them are working. Yeah, and if we go to the next slide, you can <laughs> see break, the Alice. smoke break. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, union jobs. You know, this picture looks as if they're taking bodies out of the car. Um, you can see there in center, center, there's a white cloth of some sort. Is that what I think it is? Probably. I have no idea. This looks like, Probably, at, at yeah. this point, I'm tired enough that this looks like, you know, name any one thing in this photo. Yeah, right? <laughs> Alice, do you want to drop off and the three of us can No, 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 absolutely sure. not. Just chuck it, just chuck yeah. it, bud. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, let's continue on to the next slide. So... One of the major issues with this wreck was that it was a mix of old and new equipment. Uh, you can see that the Northern Pacific car pictured here, and also we talked about earlier, was the oldest in the consist, a 1915-era built Pullman, which was then 30-plus years old, which doesn't sound that old compared to some of the 60- or 70-year-old equipment that Amtrak still operates here and there, although most of the heritage stuff has been retired for new equipment. But um, it, it, it came off better than a lot of the sort of lighter, more modern stuff, which is splashed across it. It's interesting uh, how, like, this this roof has gone and healed like fabric, you know? Yeah. Mm. 
it's a little disconcerting to say the least. Mm -hmm. um, heavyweight cars tended to fare quite uh, good in uh, derailments. Um, this was before the reason why uh, Pullman decided to build the uh, concrete floored steel sided uh, Pullman heavyweights was following a uh, 75 years of using complete uh, wood construction on coaches. And I'm sure there's a where there's a, a podcast episode about passenger cars catching on fire whenever stoves would tip over or telescoping into one another because the train would just ram through them. Um, these cars helped reduce that. As seen here, telescoping can still occur. Um, yes. And that's one of the scary parts about it. Although you are safer in a heavyweight car, it was not a guaranteed safety, safe place to be. Mm. Um, the lightweight cars were actually fairly okay. The real problem was mixing the two together in the consist, which caused the lighter weight cars obviously to uh, take more of the impact force and um, be far more damaged than some of their heavyweight counterparts. All right, let's look at the next slide. Here's another view. Um, you can see some of the wonky equipment, the vestibule torn from the car in the center there. Um, and it looks like some really old maintenance away cars, some wooden coaches with open vestibules on the left there. Oh yeah, these these um, guys wow, look like yeah. they're from like the 1870s. Yeah. yeah, yeah, easily. And the queue actually kept a lot of old maintenance away cars like that around for you know hauling tools and material around. So you have all three eras of pa American passenger equipment in the 20th the 20th century right in one picture. Um, so you can get an <laughs> idea of the old wooden fire traps the more resilient but still vulnerable steel, and the uh, flexible, lightweight cars. Uh, four separate investigations ensued. As we talked about, the coroner's office recommended manslaughter oh, right, right, charges right, right, for the engineer. Right, right. Um, then the second one. This is a really weird one and not one I would imagine they do in the aviation industry. So the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy decided to take an identical consist with skilled engineers and recreate the disaster, but with a full brake application. So they took an entire what? Like what? not in yeah. a simulator, yeah. not just, on a, like no, a. This is forensic files in real life, motherfucker. Get on board. Not, not, not like on a test a... track. No, on, no. On the, the same. No. The same piece of track. After they That's repaired incredible. it. That's incredible. Yeah. Just, it was what just what a really they, strong what, bet that this is like operator right. error. That fuck it, we'll do it again. What did they totally engineer? Like, so, how did they pay him off to do this? You, you're I like don't... the train equivalent of a test pilot. You know, you've got yeah, the right yeah. stuff. You're Chuck <laughs> yeah. Yeager. You're train yeah. Chuck Yeager. Chuck Yeager. Train Yeager. Yeah. Or uh, Casey Yeager, in this case, if we want to mix railroad. Casey Yeager, that's right, yeah. There we go. So, yeah, this guy with balls of steel. Guy in like oh a my God. Sort of olive green yeah, flight not, suit and the like engineer. I would to be the guy whose job it was on Friday to uh, do the train crash on purpose. Yeah, yeah so, get a get get a passing grade in train crash. So the ICC document details how they did this, and it's freaking wild. So they parked the train exactly the stop train ahead of the uh, one that they were going to ram, uh, exactly where the real one was originally in the wreck. Fuck me. They get the engine to exactly the same speed for the train that was to ram the the stopped consist ahead of it. They applied the brakes in a full emergency brake application from the first red signal versus blowing through the red signal, right? And the train comes to a stop in less than one passenger car length from the back of this thing. Can you imagine? <laughs> can you imagine doing that test and you're behind the throttle and the head no, of the no, CB I don't like to like, imagine that. 
right? <laughs> Stressful for anybody. I think I think I once say. you make it though, you have kind of a job for life. You know, right. if you didn't yeah. already, yeah. like oh, this is so. Johnson. He's our train crasher. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this is a way the the Q thought this is a smart way to splat, make splashy headlines. It's like, look, this disaster could have avoided if you actually paid attention to the signals, which was true, but a very risky way to prove this. Um, I love the DuPage County District Attorney uh, Lee Daniels. He said the railroad was quote rehearsing the evidence. <laughs> and if that I is mean, not a title for a noir film, I don't know what is. Yeah, I, I, I mean, the, the, the main thing I think is back in the day, publicity stunts used to be stunts, right? Yeah, not yeah. publicity. It was absolutely wild. I could you, I could you imagine being trackside for that in the cab anywhere near this thing when they were playing around with it? Just nuts. So the mm. third, I is would have the... been on a nearby rooftop with like, uh, you know, eating oh, some yeah. popcorn, drinking oh, yeah. some beers, you know, mm-hmm. and a 16 Let's see millimeter. This thing. Yeah. My, and my, a 16 my millimeter movie dirt... camera. Yeah. Yeah. My, my yep. dirt cheap 1940s Leica camera, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so the third is the most important investigation and kind of the crux of this whole episode. So the Interstate Commerce Commission did a larger investigation on the wreck, focusing on the strength differences between heavyweight and lightweight cars and their effect on mixing the two types in one train. It also recommended uh, automatic train stop guidelines, but we'll talk more on that later. And finally, the fourth investigation, the DuPage County Grand Jury found that though the railroad and some employees were negligent, no single act caused the wreck. Rather, the accident resulted in a combination from many factors. No indictments were made, and charges against the expedition flyer's engineer were dropped. Yeah, that's sort so of a, we next... want to forget about this now sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. To get out of a grand jury. So I went through the original uh, Interstate Commerce Commission ruling documents and found some uh, little tidbits here. This is basically the, uh, the abstract. Um, and you can read through it. It's available online. It's kind of, it's kind of fascinating, but very copy burned. So it's kind of hard mm-hmm. to read. That's how you know it's a good document. That's a, yeah, exactly. that's, that means it's official. Yeah. <laughs> so from this uh, from this accident, they determined that uh, the track was good for eighty miles an hour posted speed limit. Uh, the Illinois, uh, the Interstate Commerce Commission recommended uh, seventy nine max for uh, areas that were not equipped with any automatic train stop technology so that if you blow past a red it immediately goes into emergency um and a lot of railroads don't have that even today um they haven't even implemented uh, ats or any type of uh positive train control don't need it we put our faith in one very sleep deprived guy yes (laughs) yeah waiting for this podcast right waiting for a stoplight of some sort which is absurd here's the distinction they applied a 79 cap on speeds nationwide. Every railroad from A to Z was given this guideline. You cannot go faster unless you install these automatic train stop uh, signaling requirements. Oh, this um, is going to be one of those great pieces of railroad decision making where it's like two cents cheaper to just not do it. They right? just yep. don't do it. Yeah. It's the, uh, it's the classic, what was it, American Airlines Olive? removal thing yeah 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 so <clears throat> uh without getting into What's too the american much... airlines olive removal thing oh so american airlines saved like some number of millions and not a small number by removing one olive from each of their like uh salads oh, on the I basis see. that you wouldn't notice the extra olive but uh you know it, it adds up pretty quickly um 
So unlike, so unlike uh, modern uh, congressional things that are forcing railroads to uh, upgrade to new technology that is actually considered new, the ICC actually took a rather moderate stance. Um, the inductive automatic train stop system had been around since the 1920s. It's basically magnet on side of track. Locomotive has magnetic anomaly detector on the side of the truck of the locomotive. If it goes past it and it is energized, the electromagnet, it immediately kicks it into emergency stop. That's as simple as it gets. Uh, had, so you run lead light. Yeah, they had stuff uh, even simpler than that. Uh, well before that, like in the 1890s, the Pennsylvania Railroad had a system where there was um, there was literally like a, a glass bulb on top of the uh, the locomotive, and uh, if you went under a stop signal, there was a lever that dropped down from the stop signal, broke the bulb, and the bulb uh, let the uh, the air pressure escape from the system and caused an automatic emergency brake. Uh, uh, application it's like a physical interlock between a signal and a train that's so cool yeah that's pretty smart honestly so this all turned into some, to some grand standing um let's also put some perspective in here um the general public's view of railroading after world war ii had bumped them off of their trains in favor of troop movements and other inconveniences like of course we had a war to fight duh but you know your average joe trying to get to go see grandma was more or less inconvenienced throughout the entire war uh, to always, you know, not oh, Well, travel. you know, what, what, why are you trying to see grandma instead of landing on the beaches at Anzio, huh? Exactly. Yeah. So the general public was pretty sour on the railroads uh, for many, many reasons, from everything from financial finagling to bad service to all sorts of things. So the will was not in favor of like, oh, yes, let's all band together to make this concerted safety improvement. Um, the airlines, which were nascent at the time, of course, it was all propeller driven uh, at the time, prop liners, DC-3s, 4s, 5s, 6s, um, and, you know, your Lockheed Constellations, all that sort of thing. Um, you know, they took it as an opportunity. Um, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But it was the combination of uh, some lobbying efforts by them and also seeing the writing on the wall with the railroads and also wanting to stick it to them. Uh, there was also planning uh, of interstate highways and not just the classic one that we always talk about, but you know, the New Jersey Turnpike is a pre-war project. So is the I-10 Pasadena freeway. Um, so this idea of having a national network of roads sounded like more of an appealing thing than trying to get these horrible uh, railroads to get their shit together. So this kind of, this culminates in the next slide. In the end, though, the embattled engineer was absolved of any major blame by both the ICC and the DuPage County Grand Jury. In an October verdict, the latter declined to take action against the Burlington Railroad uh, over the crews of the train, instead of charging everyone involved with nine, quote, unquote, negligible, uh, negligent acts, ranging from improper scheduling to poor intercommunication between conductors. Rule changes followed. In, in 1951, the ICC mandated that trains were only permitted to exceed 90, 79 miles per hour if automatic train stop equipment was in place and most rail agencies didn't mix cars of different weights on the same train, the heavyweight versus lightweight thing. Hmm. So now we're into epilogue mode. What happened after this uh, ICC ruling? 
about to say, this is uh, one of your infamous uh, unfunded mandates, which has resulted in really bad outcomes on the railroads, uh, basically forever. Um, Interesting. Yeah, I mean, if you think about big picture railroading, we can look in the next slide at the pretty uh, Santa Fe uh, War Bonnet Go 7. Um, <clears throat> yeah, think about it this way. The, in the 19th century, the robber barons robbed the uh, US government absolutely fucking blind. And the 20th century was the government retribution for that. So <clears throat> they ruled in, uh, the ICC ruled in 51, the trains traveling 80 miles an hour above or more were to have automatic cab signaling or automatic train stop or some sort of train control system. Only the Santa Fe implemented inductive automatic ATS uh, as prescribed after the incident. Nobody else, not a single other class one railroad in the United States or Canada decided to implement this because nobody decided it was a worthwhile expense. Um, in an interesting move, the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy, the railroad involved in this accident, decided that instead of uh, implementing um, inductive ATS, that they upgraded their track on all the other parts of the system so they could run 79 miles an hour over the entire route. And <laughs> you, weirdly you come enough, up to the lowest common denominator. That's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> and weirdly enough, the schedules barely changed. So they just upgraded some of the slower routes and the schedule improved. So it was such a weird maneuver just not to have to put the system in place. Um, Santa, the Santa Fe was the only railroad that implemented afterwards, and they ran well above 90 miles an hour in scheduled uh, freight and passenger service uh, west of the Mississippi. Um, now, they weren't the first since this technology, as I said, was a couple decades old. Uh, there are a couple of other installations of inductive ATS, and those were on the New York Central's water level route, the Southern Railway's main line in the south, and the Chicago and Northwestern commuter routes out of Chicago. So literally within like visual sight of where this wreck is, is another railroad using the system, the safety system. It's it, it, the mind boggles. I love um, standardization, you know? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, the, the Santa Fe prospered uh, with the higher mainline speeds, was able to reduce their transcontinental Chicago to Los Angeles uh, train schedules by, I think they shaved like over 10 hours off of their schedule by uh, in implementing uh, ATS and just constantly improving their track and mainline. So there's an alternative future that could have happened for some of these railroads if they decided to spend a goddamn dollar on what they were doing. Um, let's go to the next slide. Predictably, regional airlines flourished after this decision. As part of, uh, yep. as part of reconversion <laughs> after World War II, aircraft manufacturers like Douglas, Boeing, Convair, and Lockheed benefited from filling in a regional aircraft market still flooded at the time using World War II-era DC-3s. While finding the DCC replacement in itself is a future, well, there's your problem episode, let's be honest, the airlines grew, and with it, it's net, the network of interconnected local, regional, and long-distance passenger trains eroded almost completely after World War II in a slow decline. Eventually, passenger service fragmented so badly, there wasn't even a single daily train between most major American cities, let alone medium and small-sized cities that once built up around the railroad depot in every single one of them 70 years before. Uh, I mean, listen, the good news is those regional airlines are going to stay around forever, and that's going to preserve sort of like passenger transport between those sort of medium to small cities, right? And and they're completely safe. There's never mm -hmm. been a problem with a DC-3. 
No, oh, or this da, da. Yeah. And especially no problems with this twin-engined conveyor we have on the screen. Yeah. None at all. <sighs> so, and that's kind of an interesting plane there. It was a Rolls-Royce Dart-powered conveyor. That's an interesting turbo problem. <laughs> um, <clears throat> at any rate, the other picture I was going to use in this slide was an Allegheny uh, conveyor, which eventually became U.S. Air, which is now the world's largest airline, apparently. Um, oh. Go figure. Uh, let's go on to the next slide. Passenger service split between the Western Pacific, the Rio Grande, and the Burlington continued after the 1949 cancellation of the Exposition Flyer. The newly designed, all-bud, lightweight-built, legendary California Zephyr started in 1949 and continued in pretty much great quality until 1970. Uh, here it is uh, crossing the hills not too far away from where the first wreck of the Exposition Flyer was. This is over near Livermore. The wreck was over between Sonol and Pleasanton, so uh, less than 10 miles away. Um, the Zephyr is probably one of the finest American passenger trains in history, um, and it deserves respect. It's a, it's a very, it was a very great operation. Uh, let's go to the next slide. <clears throat> the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy fared well into the 1960s. Note the E5s here in this picture have been bumped down to express freight service. Eventually, the head of the CB&Q conspired to cook its own books to make it appear as if the still very profitable and very nicely appointed Zephyrs, which ran to most corners of its system, were losing money. This ruse worked, and most services were terminated by the Interstate Commerce Commission by the 1960s. Not long before the Burlington Northern merger, uh, with the Chicago Burlington Quincy being part of that, uh, and Amtrak were to change the entire landscape. So... Things didn't work out so badly for the for the queue. Like it's a it was a well-run railroad that managed to scrape together uh, one of the better mergers of the 20th century. The Burlington Northern was a and lie to the government about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But they flatly cooked the books, and they got caught. Well, they got caught after they had finished the whole thing, and they got a slap on the wrist for it, which is freaking hilarious. Um, the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy's passenger service, especially the Zephyr. Uh, express service was profitable until the day they killed it. Um, it allowed everybody uh, along the lines in the Midwest in which it served to have fast and frequent service between all of those little uh, secondary and tertiary cities uh, with Chicago. It was fantastic. It's a shame that it died before Amtrak. Well, this is also like a, a common story on a lot of railroads as they um, cook the books to make the passenger trains seem like they were uh, making a lot less money than they were, because uh, you could you could do that, and in fact you you could do that in a way that was tax advantageous. Um, yeah, sounds you know, about right. You know, especially if you you fudge the numbers on how much wear and tear on the tracks is coming from the passenger trains versus the freight trains. Um, <laughs> yeah, they. My favorite uh, corrupt story is with the Southern Pacific because some of the best corruption comes from the Southern Pacific Railroad. Yes. Um, in the 1960s, the head of the Southern Pacific uh, sent a secret memo to all the travel agent and booking agencies in California in a bid to kill the lark. What they said, basically, it was an overnight train between San Francisco and L.A., um, which would be super useful today, let's be honest. Uh, they said to the booking agents, from now on, if somebody wants to travel on the lark, tell them the train is full and suggest the daylight instead so we can kill off that train. <laughs> they followed suit. The numbers plummeted immediately to a tenth of the daily ridership that it was before. 
And the ICC was like, well, guess it's losing money. You can cancel that. And they did. <laughs> Love that chicanery. And as a final, fantastic. and the final Bond mot uh, in the slide there. In 2014, artist Paul Kuhn was commissioned to create a sculpture to commemorate the wreck with the questionable title of Tragedy to Triumph. Wow. I love art grants. More like fart grants. Yeah, it's not much there. Not sure what the wheel sets in that family we kind of recoiling in horror. Yeah. I, I'm not. Uh, there's a whole artist statement on the uh, centurywalk.org li link that we can no, put in the description. His fucking thing. It, it's yeah. it's very it's very municipal art, and I say that's a derogatory. Yeah, we need you to know, put yeah. something here. Mm -hmm. The right. funny thing is, the art was inspired by a book that somebody did about this wreck. Um, so go figure. And that concludes <laughs> the wreck, the Napierville wreck of 1946. All right. On this, yeah. Well, show. what did we learn? Oh, fucking! I uh, don't mix let your your, your generations of cars. Well, airplanes uh, can go five fifty, but trains have to go seventy nine. Ridiculous! Let the trains go five fifty. Never, your never, never, out, your never out. You'll be all right. Never trust uh, railroads to you know obey regulation in the spirit to which it's intended. You have to rice it to be watertight. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the, the takeaway I wanted folks to have from this is, um, you know, when you're writing regulation for railroads, um, these are big they corporations. They will find a way to get they, around it. They can't they, wait to, to yeah, violate it. They have lots of uh, lawyers. Uh, they have lots of money. Um, and they have lots of ways to run their system worse uh, that they don't give a fuck about you, so they will just do that, they're, right? They're waiting uh, for you to give them a reason to run the to run the railroad worse than they already and, are. And this is an example where the Interstate Commerce Commission came in and said, you have to install this technology or run your train slower. And they were like, well, I guess we're going to run the train slower. And the National Passenger Railroad Network suffered greatly as as a result. Um, cause all of a sudden these, these trains were not as competitive with driving or with airlines than they were before. Uh, cause uh, again, the, 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 cause, cause the speed limit was lower and no one was any safer as a result. Uh, ultimately, you know, this is not like a, um, not, not so much uh, a question of, uh, is it actually safer to go 79 miles an hour versus 110? I, I mean, but you have you have these regulations where it's like you need to install these safety mechanisms or do this other thing it will pick the, the railroad will do the other thing i mean an, another another very timely example is the electronically controlled pneumatic brake mandate that um certain folks are pushing for mm -hmm. uh uh dot and fra to uh, go through the actual text of that was you either need to install these bra this braking system or you need to limit the train to 30 miles an hour. Which they and will happily do. They don't give they a fuck. Will, they would definitely do that, yeah. Um, so uh, this, is, this is part of a... a, a I don't know. This, this is one of the first, I think, examples of one of these situations where railroads egregiously and... Um, flagrantly and uh so on and so forth violated the spirit of the law and it resulted in well, not one of the first examples i mean they do this constantly but i can't think of 
one of the most iconic examples. One of the most iconic examples. Uh, we all suffered for it. Um, and, you know, this is why I'm kind of cynical about mm-hmm. regulating the railroads, because I think, you know, if you want actual change to occur, you got to nationalize them. Um, <laughs> you got to have them actually run yes, in the public absolutely. interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's time for USRA 3 slash Conrail 2. Um, honestly, when I was talking with a, uh, with an author, a railroad historian, about this the other day, and um, he posited an interesting idea, and that any place that we should run passenger equipment, it should also be owned by the government for freight as well. So if you take the skeletal Amtrak network, for instance, you purchase all that from underneath those railroads, and then you create a bonanza of smaller class ones from all the lines that are not part of that skeletal system. And any time that we want to increase passenger service on a particular line, the government buys it, upgrades the line to 125 or better, and then uh, inaugurates both freight and passenger service on that line, which is now well-maintained, well-operated, uh, and, well, better quality than anything that we've managed to do in the 21st century when it comes to railroading. Yeah. I'm still, I'm still very much, uh, I work under the one big railroad theory. I think yeah. that's the way to go. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah, if possible. Absolutely. You know, yeah. the one I propose is probably a half step towards one large national network. A nationalized network would be phenomenal for many, many, many reasons and probably yes. save so much like we saw we see the bad example with british rail and the beaching acts and blah 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 everybody who lived through the 1960s in britain bitches about it um and rightfully so in a lot of cases let's be honest uh but we look at the positive example which was conrail they rationalized uh overly competitive network in which like four railroads were coming into some tiny ass town to serve 1.5 industries you know, um, and rationalize it down to one main line with spurs that go to all the, you know, the producers and industries that were necessary, maintaining the track all the while, buying new equipment when it was needed, upgrading things that didn't, you know, very logical. I would say um, with some reservations, British Rail is a much better example of how these things should be run than Conrail was. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yes. I can see that as well. Um, what positive examples would you want to uh, highlight? Positive exa- well, it'd be, it'd be like the SBB mm-hmm. uh, in yeah. Switzerland. <laughs> you know, <sighs> that's the one. I, I hate to cut this short, but Alice is dying. We need well, to wrap yeah, this I'm, I'm up. I'm fine. I'm fine. But yes, well, also shut up. <laughs> we have a segment on this podcast. I, I heard called... that. I heard the Alice, uh, like no snort sigh. And I was like, oh. Uh-huh. Oh, my baby's tired. I feel that. <laughs> I I ate, and I don't feel tremendous. So let's uh let's do safety third. We had a we have a segment on this podcast called safety third. There's a fifty fifty doing... chance of this being the right drop. Change the danger. Hey, I made it. What was the other one? Yeah. What was it? Piss. No, it's Rich Piana saying dick, but like at a yeah. distance. Oh, I heard uh, piss. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a yellow flagger, they call me. <laughs> that too. Hi from New Zealand. There's a lost Johnny Cash. Hi from New Zealand. I, I could be wrong. Get out. 
Yeah. I haven't heard you guys cover any food industry related incidents on this oh, segment before. Oh, whatever it is, I don't like it already. All right. No, I'm no, sure I'm we have problems. Talked, yeah. We have talked about the meat deck. Um, <laughs> that's true. That, that was that was certainly yeah, that was yeah. food. I work in the deli section of the supermarket. Although, to be honest, I think calling it a deli is a bit of a stretch. One mm-hmm. of the main things that this deli slices or sells is sliced meat, which obviously they slice, which they yeah, slice in the store. Right, yes, yes. To do this, we use an industrial meat slicer. I was going to try and get a photo of one for you, but uh, my supervisor yells at anyone who has their phone on them when working. So I've included... <sighs> Apologize for that. No, Everyone's it wasn't tired. even me yeah. at that time. Yeah. <laughs> So I included a photo of a similar model and a screenshot from one of your American OSHA guides on meat slicer safety that I found while searching for the first image. I think cool, its title sums up things pretty decently. That's preventing cuts and amputations from food slicers and meat grinders. Ugh. I mean, I'm, I'm in favor of preventing them. I'll say yeah. that. Basically, this thing's an extremely sharp metal disc that spins really fast and the same bit of meat gets pushed across the blade over and over again until the whole thing's been turned into shaved ham that we can sell for roughly $6 more than it's actually worth. I'm, I'm remembering the tweet here that's like, this is an unholy blend of the meat of seven different animals. Uh, you know, the, the, this is sort of beyond the sight of God. We also have a low-sodium version if you prefer that, you know? That sounds delicious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> um... In other words, the machine that's designed to cut through flesh and small bits of bone very quickly without stopping at all. And using it, oh God. And using it requires <laughs> you to put your hands and fingers near it, which isn't a great combination. Officially, sure. we're meant to wear chainmail gloves when using knives chain or operating. gloves! Nice! Chain, yeah. I, I am the knight of the meat counter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, it's a yeah. tune of uh, oh, I there's the an ad like that going around for Jersey Mike's right now. Yeah. None shall pass. Officially, we're meant. Mm. Officially, we're meant to wear chainmail gloves when using knives or operating the finger remover machine, but most people find those annoying and don't bother. I'm sure this hasn't been helped by the fact our former department manager, who also gave the extremely limited safety training for the machine would straight up tell you that the gloves were a waste of time and inefficient. Cool. What is, is, is someone like, uh, like, creaking some old wood, or is that just a really loud mouse wheel? No, there's, there's definitely, there's a rocking there. chair, but... I'm sorry, guys. I have to talk about old train stuff in an old. <laughs> I don't have my hands anywhere near my mouse or keyboard. Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay. It was me. I'm Whatever. sorry. At the time of the incident, I was probably the only person in that place that actually used the chainmail gloves. I was also the only one of us who hadn't been fully trained to operate the slicer. On a particularly difficult, <laughs> on a particularly difficult shift, when both of these people, who usually operate the slicer, were off sick, the aforementioned supervisor who likes yelling at people told me to slice some ham. Oh no, the ham is going to be his junk. Yeah, I'm scared oh, to slice the ham. Although I tried to dun, tell dun, him, dun. I didn't actually know how the machine worked, 
He wasn't hearing any of it. Cool. I was very tired. <laughs> yeah, imagine that. Yeah. And I'd already been told off by management after he got mad at me once uh, before, and I didn't want to lose my job, so I caved in and abandoned my right to refuse unsafe work. Here's a, a tip from our podcast to yours. Don't do that if you can yeah. help it. Yeah. Yeah. Even if that you're is... really sleepy, because you know what really wakes you up is losing a finger, right? Mm, this is true, yeah. Well, until the blood loss puts you back to sleep. Mm. Yeah. You're very awake for a minute, but it's not like a good way of being awake. It's not a good minute, yeah. Well, I was pretty worried about using the machine. I did my best and started to think I might be getting the hang of it. Then my hand slipped and my fingers ended up pushed towards the blade. Oh, no. Now, the no. long story short is, I'm very, very glad I stuck with the gloves. The ends of one of them, they were too big for my hands and hug off the ends of my fingers a bit. I don't know why I'm yawning so much. I'm not even tired. <laughs> no, that's me. I'm yeah, just, I'm just dragging you all sick, down. Yeah. They ended up caught between the blade and the rest of the machine, meaning my hand was stuck, and the blade kept grinding itself against the glove while my hand was trapped against it. Mm. I had to shout to the only other person on the shift, my dickhead of a supervisor, to turn the machine off because the switch was on the other side of the machine uh, to my free arm, and I couldn't actually reach it. Now, he even had the nerve to tell me off afterwards when I'd finally extracted my hand from the machine and then said, said that we shouldn't write it up in the internal health and safety incident reports because one employee being stupid isn't worth telling management about. <sighs> now, arguably, what I did was stupid, yes, but I'm pretty sure the stupidest thing I, I did was do what he was telling me to do when I had no way of knowing how to use the machine. Oh, no. At the end of the day, I didn't get injured thanks to the gloves that no one else wears, but I'm still so angry at that arsehole for the whole thing, and I've be pretty much become that guy at work who's a total nerd, pestering everyone to follow safety procedures around the yeah. Amputator Tron 3000. <laughs> <laughs> because, can I read this next slide? Yeah. Because Jesus motherfuck, do I not want to find out what would have happened if I hadn't been. That's a beautiful sentence. Yes. True. As a last note, since then I've noticed that my supervisor has started wearing the chainmail gloves when he uses the slicer. It's an unspoken victory of the sweetest kind. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much for your podcast and for giving me something to listen to while I'm at break at work. You're all awesome. All the best. Pat. You're welcome. Thanks, Pat. Uh, Thank you. They, are, them, Pat. They, them, Pat. Thank you, they, uh, them, yeah. Pat. All right. Okay. Uh, Miles, if the people want more Miles, where can they find more Miles? Uh, our next episode will be on Do the Chernobyl care. disaster. We're wrapping this bitch up. Shake hands with danger. Does anyone have any commercials <laughs> before we go? Listen to Trash Future. Listen to Kill James Bond. Listen to Well, There's where, Your Problem. Where, That's where Miles? Where more Miles? Where, 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 miles? Be, where be Miles? You can find... You can find more Miles on YouTube at YouTube Interurban Era, Interurban Era, or you can find me on Patreon uh, at patreon.com slash Interurban Era. Links hopefully thanks, in the description. Bye. All right. Yeah. Thanks, bye. All right. Good night. That was a podcast. We did it. Did we keep it under two? Did we keep it under two? We kept it under two. We kept Alice it under two. I was very tired. <laughs> <laughs>